in 50 years, we will be reintroduced to using psychoactive substances in our daily lives, be it with microdosing to just focus better. I think people will be able to look into this to enhance their lives, their relationships, their creativity. Once yeah. the, the stigma has gone and you have developed a practice around it, there's a big chance that it will be part of our lives. Welcome to the Mr. Rat Show, where I talk to the most interesting global personalities about the future of humanity. Hello, beautiful humans. Today I'm here with Anne Filippi. She is the founder of the New Health Club, and we're going to talk about psychedelics. Super exciting project. Anne, let's start by telling my audience why do you think psychedelics are an important part or tool of our future as humans? That's a really big question. First of all, thank you for, <laughs> for having me on the show. Um, the short answer to this is that I think we as a world and society are no longer able to, let's say, succeed with our own old tools and ways of working around mental health and in general health topics. So we need new tools. We need new ways to look into our brains, to work around our depression, to work around our trauma. And when I say new tools, this meaning psychedelics, it's almost uh, funny because, of course, they're not new. They've been often thousands of years old, used in plants or by plant, with plant medicine. And uh, let's say what we think of psychedelics today as LSD, magic mushrooms, 5-MeO-DMT or ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is basically thousands of years old. So these, let's say, new substances on MDMA, of course, they were actually once set up to help us to treat, let's say, depression and anxiety. But then because of political strategies, mainly by America, by Richard Nixon, to criminalize them and uh, use them to create more racism in the United States while, for example, connecting cannabis or drugs to the black community. So Nixon used this actually as a tool. Mm. So and then criminalized a lot of these drug like psychedelics. And we all heard about the war on drugs. And since then, since the seventies, nobody could ever research them anymore. Right. Although there was a huge progress. They were they were all so they were all put in the same drawer kind of as drugs. Yes. Instead exactly. of yeah. medicine. Yeah. Exactly. And, and a lot of these substances were medicine, like we said, thousands of years old. And is really more like a sometimes a question of colonialism and racism than just you know people being an addict or anything right. but i mean this whole story around drugs that we all grew up with in the last 30 40 years is now completely transforming because i think we need new tools like psychedelics to look into new forms of trauma and depression that we're experiencing right now with, for example, you know, what happened in the last couple of months in the world is a really big example, I think. Right. And <clears throat> so, you know, a regular person would tell me, okay, I'm not, fortunately, I'm not in, in a war zone. Yeah. Fortunately, my mm -hmm. life is pretty normal. I don't have any trauma. I don't have any problem. Would you say they <clears throat> might be wrong in a sense that, <clears throat> We all have even generational traumas and we don't even notice it. We're mm. not paying attention enough. Yeah, I think there's a whole new redefinition also around what trauma actually is. And like you already mentioned it, like how it is connected to <clears throat> three or four generations before us that people that we never maybe personally met, but that they have experienced trauma that is actually in in a epigenetic way delivered to us basically right uh, but this is only one thing i think like just the idea around how a trauma could look like how it's presenting itself into our lives into our daily lives into our relationships that is just undergoing probably one of the biggest transformations in the last i don't know probably 50 100 years there were always people researching this and one psychiatrist, especially in his book, The Body Keeps the Score, he's called Bessel van der Kolk, like a, in the meantime, 80-year-old Dutch psychiatrist living in America. And 
I think he brought out this book a while ago, but he was one of the first people, let's say, redefining how trauma shows itself in our bodies or brains after having experienced something like that, but never really looked into how it could actually change your life in a way that you wouldn't even realize that the trauma was actually the case mm. for these, let's say, mental health problems, right. but also like classic health problems. Like, And then a good example for this is something like fibromyalgia, which a lot of people have, and they just their bodies are in pain and then the doctors would say like, well, I can't find anything. So it must be your imagination that you're in pain, which is of course kind of crazy making because those people hardly ever would lie to the doctor. They just don't know where the pain comes right. from. And it's a very interesting example that shows that there might be some trauma pain in those people's bodies. Mm -hmm. And which can be found in a classic diagnose in a hospital or with a classic doctor. Mm. So a lot of people looking into psychedelics who are actually suffering from fibromyalgia sometimes report that in their trip, they've seen, for example, somebody um, or a person in their, in their family where the pain actually came from, oh, wow. but it wasn't their own pain. That's yeah. very I mean, I had a, actually two people telling me this. Mm. So... A woman, she she always was battling with fibromyalgia and then she went onto a, into a ma magic mushroom trip and she saw in the experience that, yeah, like I said, like her people in her family had were kind of trying to deal with this pain that wasn't hers. So in the trip, she could let it, the pain go and had a much better quality of life. She she could let go of her, fiber, like the, you know, the, the pain system that her body was kind of storing. And keeping alive. And this is actually a really good example how psychedelics can actually help to look into the many, many variations how trauma is manifesting in our bodies. Mm. So not only in our relationships or like, you know, also in our physical right. body. Right. And it's not only a, a problem of, uh, let's say, psychedelics. So it's not only the tool to help with depression or PTSD, but also with trauma that like you said, reflecting the body with body pain, for example. And yes. so if you yeah. think psychedelics is a tool to help us reset your brain or trauma, do you think it's important to have someone next to you when you are in, let's say, going on a trip? Because I know a lot of people mm -hmm. take this maybe as <clears throat> almost as a party drop or just to have fun. Mm -hmm. But these are tools that are super powerful. And as you said, they've been yeah. used by our ancestors for mm -hmm. many, many years. So what is your opinion on this? How do you how do you see this? Well, I think, I mean, like you say, there are situations and, and moments where it's absolutely great to have, you know, kind of a let's call it recreational experience with psychedelics once you know how to deal with it and if you have if you're informed and you have a little bit of a practice i mean it's a wonderful thing right. but i think if you really would like to look into an underlying issue or a depression even or like a therapeutical thing then and this is also my own experience it is absolutely powerful and necessary i think to have a guide on your side and in terms of a magic truffle trip in, for example, in Netherlands or magic mushroom trip, it's mostly one, one person guiding you also because you're flat on your back. And I mean, you basically, you're not moving and, but your body might have some reactions like you might cry or you just have a moment where you want to grab somebody's hand and just hold it. Even if you don't talk so much because on, on a high dose of, Mushrooms, you will not talk <laughs> so much anymore. Mm -hmm. Or, for example, like we have in the MAPS protocol, MAPS is a very important organization trying to legalize um, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, and it's called Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies with Rick Doblin as a founder. So, But if you have, let's say, an MDMA-guided experience, then, for example, there's a protocol for I think Annie and Michael Mithoffer who created this, that you have two people next to you, like basically kind of your parents, like a man and a woman guiding you through the experience. And in, MDM, in an MDMA therapy, for example, you rather talk to the therapist or they ask you questions 
And because they ask you questions, you're able to go much deeper into a possible trauma that you're trying to solve here or the reason for your depressions. And I think if, if, if it's really something or it's a moment where you really would like to find out what is going on with you, even if you just have a question, why am I not doing this? What is keeping me away? It doesn't always have to be like a very severe traumatic thing, but it will be much harder to find out by yourself. And also another thing is that your nervous system will be much quieter and you will be able to access way more information because your body and your nervous system have the information. I'm safe. You feel safe. I can, yeah. I feel safe. You can totally open up. And if I cry, somebody will be there for me. Or if I scream, also somebody will be there for me. So it's, it's a very important thing, I think. <laughs> right. When you talk about trauma and therapy, what kind of people look for therapy? Because again, mm -hmm. someone like the regular Joe and Jane listening to this episode would think, okay, I don't need therapy. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> so great. I'm great. Amazing. I'm doing good. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> but in your experience, what kind of people right now are looking for therapy? And do you think this is going to open up a bit more to those regular Joes and Janes that are listening? Yeah. I mean, talking about the regular Joe and Janes, I mean, we are, we are experiencing two big wars right now in, in Europe. And so it's not only like the Ukraine and Israel and, and Palestine. So, I mean, and it's not, there are like 20 soldiers going to fight and then they come back and they might need an MDMA therapy. It's two, three proper countries where the civilians and normal people living there will have absolute traumatic experience with these things that are just happening, which are kind of, you know, coming back into their lives as, you know, like the, the conflict between Israel and Palestine, it's very old. Like also Ukraine has always been a difficult situation, in, in a difficult situation with Russia, meaning that more and more civilians and let's say normal people will have to be able to work through what they are just experiencing. And I don't think... Even if we hear what's happening there, even not living there, it's almost impossible, I think, and I'm, I think I'm bucked by science there a little bit, that our brains will not be able to deal with this anymore right. in the way they used, I mean, you would, they used to, it's not even the right thing to say. They're not able to deal with this. What we see, what people in these countries are experiencing, this is one thing that is so severe and then... Also, we are exposed to a new amount of social media that is showing us what is happening in these countries. And many people get, maybe even without knowing it, get re-traumatized just looking at this kind of content. And uh, their brain keeps telling them, oh, look at it, look at it. This is kind of, you know, something in you that is responding to this, like you should look at it. And this is sometimes almost like a trauma response from the brain to look at pictures or very cruel. Right, um, it's very human thing to look at cruel It is stuff. human. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It, but at the same time, especially in these two cases, it's almost like, a brain that is already traumatized will look for re-traumatizing experiences in a very strange way because that's what it knows, right, kind of. Right. And this is, I think, one of the really crucial elements of the psychedelic therapy that we would think, oh, let's, your brain would actually tell you, don't look this way. It's very cruel. It's very, you know, upsetting. But then your brain, as a traumatized brain, will exactly pick these kind of scenarios because it knows it. And it's a very good, very interesting example how, how this goes with veterans. So if they are, let's say, going to the Iraq war and in America, a lot of veterans are starting to look into psychedelic therapy because of that reason. So they would come home from Iraq, let's say, after a couple of years. And then you would think, oh, now they're home. That's so great. Now they're safe because they're not in a war anymore. But this is when their problems really start to become visible or like apparent in their families because the worst for them is to go home. And because the brain is like, but wait, I don't understand. What, what, what's going on here? Where, where's the next traumatic experience? Because this is what I know. Mm -hmm. So a lot of them actually can't wait. And it's a very interesting uh, system, how our brain works. They, they can't wait to go back. Mm -hmm. Although you would think, well, if they go back, 
there's a big chance they might die. Right. But this is what the brain eventually saves and says like, well, oh, great. Yeah, that's what I know. Now I feel safe. Mm. Kind of. It's funny because I think that all these experiences, maybe we, like you said, we have them in, in, in really hidden parts of our brains from maybe generations yeah. ago and we don't realize they're there. And yes. when we see a photo mm -hmm. of war in Gaza or in Ukraine, that kind of like comes up again and triggers it. And maybe we get hooked and they, we want to see more and we get angry and we, and mm -hmm. this, all, mm -hmm. all these yeah. sensations and feelings that we get just from experiencing this on the mobile, not even on site. So I think that's, that's crazy. And it comes down to maybe making us less sensitive to it in a way. Absolutely. And it's interesting that uh, you, you say this because I, I actually read um, one of the recent studies about MDMA therapy is from Johns Hopkins in, in Maryland that it, in therapy, your brain is resensitized, which means that if you had experienced trauma, let's say as a child, your brain desensitizes, like it becomes less sensitive to things that are horrible happening around you. But in this MDMA therapy, it's almost like your brain is able to go back to a state, very simply said what I'm saying now, to a state where it's not been traumatized. And how would you feel about certain things then? How would you not like to be treated by certain people, mm -hmm. you know, with a normally sensitized brain and not desensitized brain? Right. How would you, where would you live? How would you treat yourself in a resensitized way? And that's really fascinating because, of course, let's say this, this resensitization, we immediately have the idea of, oh, so now I'm going to be super sensitive to everything. That's also really annoying, you know, like how can I get through life? But this is not what this is. The resensitization only means you will be able to look into reactions that a person would have without a trauma. So the main thing is, let's say the goal, the main goal, which is <laughs> a long journey sometimes, is the question to yourself, what person would I be without a trauma? Mm, so, interesting question. And a, lot of, and, and a lot of people, I mean, including myself, starting to go on their personal psychedelic journey. At one point, after a couple of trips, start to realize, wow, this is that person. And if I wouldn't have experienced the trauma, I would be the other person or I would be a different person. Absolutely. And it's basically your, your quest that you're going on is to find the person without the trauma. That's very, very interesting. And it's interesting that, that you talk about people getting desensitized because yeah. when they go through so harsh experiences and they maybe grow in a society that is full of violence, for example, I could tell you. From my mm -hmm. personal experience, I grew up in, in Colombia in the 80s and the 90s, and oh, that wow. was full yeah. of mm -hmm. violence, the war on drugs, as we were talking about before. And people grew like that. And there was war. There were bombs banging here and there, people getting kidnapped. You would turn on the TV and there would like kids on the ground full of blood. It was horrible. And I think, I believe, it's my belief that people in Colombia in the 80s and the 90s grew without... Mm, At some point, we were not questioning it anymore, and we were just normalizing it. And I definitely believe that that created traumas on people's minds that, again, most of us don't even know about because we think we live in a normal, well, you know, we're living a normal life. And this is me, and this is my personality, and it, it's, it, I didn't get affected by the war because, whatever, I was safe. But in reality, it did affect me in many ways if I yes, really start learning. Yeah about myself. And mm -hmm. I think it's super interesting what you said that going into a psychedelics journey is this quest of trying to find out who would I be without a trauma? In my case, without the trauma <clears throat> of growing in such society. So I think this is powerful. Interesting. Yeah. And I think, and I think what you said with Colombia, I mean, of course you, you kind of, I mean, imagine immediately how that affected you as a person, as a child right. even already. And um, another thing is that, and that's also a good example for this, that in, in the Netherlands and a lot of these retreats, let's say a lot of German people who go there from Germany to experience a trip and to work on themselves, a lot of people have experiences in the trip 
that whether they're Nazi past or even the past of Germany as a former you know, Nazi country is coming to them in the trip. And it's not even necessarily that their family was, you know, kind of uh, pro-Hitler in the sea level. Mm. Yeah, in the sea level of the Nazi League or anything. So it just sometimes is enough that their, I mean, obviously their family, their grandparents, their grandparents had lived in a country that was under a, a dictator. Mm. So, and what that led to, as as we all know, is like probably one of the cruelest outcomes in the world. And a lot of people have encounters, let's say, in German people in, in their trips, either with, you know, like kind of they see, they kind of, let's say, they see concentration camps. They actually see what it meant for their country that this, you know, this happened there. And a lot of people actually also for the first time have their ex have the experience that they feel what kind of sadness and what kind of heaviness Germany still has to deal with mm. uh, because of this mm. and how we not trying to look into this in a, in a very emotional way. But once you encounter this in a trip, you generally, I think, have the ability to really feel what this has done to a country mm. or to your country if, if you're a German. Oh, yeah. so. I, I don't know if you've heard about the uh, the research that Dr. Leo Rossmann from Imperial College <laughs> is doing. I'm going to be on a panel with him next oh, week. Oh, really? Uh, That's months. very yeah. interesting. So I, I, mm -hmm. I think, so what I, He's a good friend. what I read was that the guy started interviewing Israeli and Palestinians who had participated in this ayahuasca retreat. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and, and the findings were just incredible. Like people yeah. built connections that would never happen if they were not on a trip like that. They were more compassionate with each other, more loving. It's just like all these traumas and all these societally built barriers, they just got eliminated right away. Yeah. And I think that the really powerful thing about psychedelics is... And even if you do your first trip and it's it's not even, you don't even go that deep or you just, you know, you start and you have a lower dose and let's say 25 gram of truffles, that's mostly like the dose that people get on a Dutch retreat at the first time. I think the most incredible thing is that you realize there's a whole different reality yeah. that we also live in that is connected to the, to your past that is connected to a very different person, you. Mm. And I mean, this sounds kind of a like a woo-woo thing that I'm saying now, but it is actually a very, very profound experience for a lot of people to realize that there's something in them that is a spiritual person. Right. And it doesn't mean a religious person right. necessarily. Although, interesting enough, sometimes you get a lot of insight, you know, what you think of your religion and what it did to you. And sometimes kind of a, a reconnection with a certain religion you had, if that's a religion that is interesting and good for you. Like Madison Margolin, she just wrote this book, Exile and Ecstasy, about the Jewish psychedelic underground. Mm. And actually very highly recommended. And there are actually a lot of new and young psychedelic rabbis right now who are actually working with cannabis, like Zach Kamenetz from Berkeley, for example. So what I'm saying is that the main thing getting into this experience is to find your own personal spiritual path again. And how this looks like is super different, but you will reconnect with a, I would say, with a force in you that you might have never met or would not like to acknowledge in you also mm, so far. That's super interesting. Tell me more about your experience. Why did you get into into this topic? Yeah, I mean, I'm like so many other people. I had, I think, 15 years of talk therapy and, and all together. And after these 15, 16 years, longer, I think 20 years, I realized nothing is really changing for me. I still cannot seem to find answers to really big questions. Let's put it that way. Right. And then again, like like so many other people, in 2018, somebody gave me the book by Michael Pollan, How to Change Your Mind. And I really started to read up about his LSD trip. And after, which is the first chapter, I think. And after this, I was like, okay, that's what I wanted to do. I didn't even finish it first. <laughs> 
And because of what I liked about him explaining how his trip was is because, you know, he's an established writer. He's like, you know, he's not like a guru person doing drugs. So he had a very good way of explaining how this kind of opened him and you again, a new idea about himself and saying this is not a woo-woo thing. Of course it is. But I mean, there's also a good woo-woo now these days. So right. <laughs> I just want to give credit to that too. Um, so yeah. And then I actually, I researched and I found a psychiatrist who, got, who guided me through the LSD trip. And then I went on my first psychedelic trip ever. So, and then I've never done psychedelics when was this before. Again? I had no experience. This was 2019. Okay. And I had a very good experience with LSD. It was really insightful for me. It was a very, it was a really good feeling I had in my body. And it was the first step for me to really also, like we talked about earlier, to start this reconnection to myself. It was the first step in a, in a, in this, on this journey. And it wasn't like I would go, come out of the trip and say like, oh, everything in my life now has to change. Although I already knew that some things were about to change and I wouldn't know how this would look like, but I knew it would start. And, and then in 2020, uh, luckily shortly before the, the um, lockdown, I've been on, at, a, at, at Synthesis in, in the Netherlands to do a high dose of psilocybin. Synthesis is what, a, a retreat? It was, it was a retreat in the Netherlands. It doesn't exist anymore. I think in, in, in Oregon, they're opening a new department now. I'm just a, have to have to look into it. So, but basically it was a very established, well-run magic truffle retreat. And after this experience, I suddenly, like a couple of weeks later, like I think the lockdown already had started, I started to realize that there was something in my childhood that was very significant, which I had forgotten about for maybe 30 years or something. And it came to me in the time after the trip, in these six weeks after where your brain is still experiencing like a so-called neuroplasticity, which means there are new connections made in your brain. You remember suddenly certain things. You have recollection of things that you've forgotten for a very long time for a very good reason. So I got in touch with this trauma that, ha that I had experienced and slowly but surely I realized how this experience with me being seven years old was a very abusive experience I had and that this abusive experience had really shaped my life after right. your this. personality the so way you think the way you see the world everything yeah. my relationships I didn't really have children I was not married so and of course at one point I asked myself this like why because I never were like oh I hate marriage I hate children but I also didn't do it really. Yeah. So, and um, as one knows, in your 20s and 30s, you're like, yeah, whatever. You just, you know, <laughs> you just go living yeah. and go partying and, and have a great job and you fly around the world, which I did. Right. But then turning 40, I was like, it is kind of, I cannot answer the question anymore. And then this brought me, this, this remembering this incident brought me on a completely different journey suddenly. And I realized that, again, like my whole life was based on, like we said earlier, on the traumatized brain right. or on a traumatized nervous system, meaning that I couldn't be close to people for a long time. I just felt overwhelmed, like even with friends. Like I remember like as a teenager, my friends would tell me, oh, you can never, you never hug me. What is, what's wrong with you? Mm. Kind of. And it was true. I, I didn't. I, I was very distanced. Yeah cold some people would say yeah. but i mean i had no recollection or no no idea why it would be that way so i kept going with my journeys and did a couple mushroom trips more and recently i just did the first mdma assisted therapy to really kind of you know and that's a very good example what we talked about earlier to really get into this very specific feeling of disconnection and when it actually started and how my brain like we said, desensitized. E. Do you have and, Do you have um, a fear? Yeah. Sorry, sorry to interrupt on that specific point. Do you fear that you create a dependence on it? Because some substances are quite addictive. So, do you fear yeah, that I mean, you, the, the, you, you, mm. you start creating a dependence on them? 
No, I mean, first of all, like the classic psychedelics like LSD and mushrooms, so they are they would not make you an addict because in the case of mushrooms, the more mushrooms you take, the less they work. So it's not like an opioid thing like heroin or let's say cocaine. And having said that, I mean, just a quick excurse on this, like if you're interested in further information about this, you should listen to Gabo Mate, who explains very well why people actually become addicts and that it's rarely ever the substance. Mm. Um, but mainly it's a trauma in you that is wanting to have that feeling <laughs> that you have when you do this so-and-so drug. Okay. So meaning that uh, some people would take heroin once and nothing would happen to them other than they would experience the heroin. Of course, it's an opioid. It's, it might be a more, you know, kind of a bigger physical explanation around this because opioids create an addiction. But I mean, this whole opioid addiction that we're experiencing now, especially in America, is not so much based on the actual addiction to the substance. And I think this is also something that is kind of hard to understand right now still for a lot of people. Right. I think this is a big barrier, not, no? A yeah. big, big obstacle for people to, yeah, yeah. to try it. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So that, I mean, the and you're right. I mean, and it is, it has a big impact on you. So it makes sense that people are you know, have respectful, fearful around mm. this, respectful, yeah. Yes. So, but <clears throat> the actual experience is there aren't people who are like, oh, I need to take now every day 25 gram mushrooms because it's not how your system will work around it. Yeah. And I think the main message here is to say that addiction is not connected to a substance. This is very short, again, a very short explanation because there. If you take, let's say, MDMA all the time, then you will have a problem around neurotoxicity. So, of course, there are other elements that you need to look into. But in terms of the actual substance in the psychedelic world, it's not about addiction that can come out of it. It's actually bringing more, a lot of people away from their addiction in terms of, for example, and then there was this big study with the, the Johns Hopkins University that I think it was already a couple of years ago, where they try to find out uh, if people undergoing a guided mushroom experience, magic mushroom experience, if they would stop smoking and meaning getting rid of their addiction with cigarettes. And a lot of people from the study reported that they saw in the trip the first time why they would actually smoke and what the reason was or how it made them feel and why they needed to chase this feeling, how it made them feel. Right. And some people afterwards, if they then would touch an actual cigarette, they would be like, oh my God, this is so disgusting. disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's a very interesting, of course, it's a very new science around these. Right. Because for 30 years, there couldn't be research. If, if Nixon wouldn't have criminalized everything, we would have way more research now right. about this. But it's almost like we starting the research since the last five years. But, but do you do would you would you agree yeah. that um on the one hand you have research and you have to believe and you don't have to, but let's say research and uh, scientific studies help us take decisions on whether we would take something or not or uh go a certain route or not. But at the same time, when you talk about psychedelics, it is a very personal experience. And therefore, if you're curious or interested, it could be interesting to you yourself try it out. Despite the research not being so advanced yet. And see how it affects you or how it positively or negatively affects you in certain way. I think like, if, if I understand you correctly, I think... I mean, there is already, of course, a lot of knowledge that was, you know, kind of, I mean, one has to say it, it went to the underground at one point for therapists who were still also in, in, in America guiding people who came to them because there was no other solution that they actually maybe suffering from depression would be able to find. And I think what's becoming visible now besides the classic research in universities that are very established, like we said earlier, is also that there's a really big network of, you could say, underground therapists who for years have collected experiences and uh, knowledge and insight into how people could actually become better 
with the psychedelic therapy. But of course, they sometimes are in a very difficult position because they can't, you know, do this openly. I mean, even in the Netherlands, people are very careful with presenting themselves as such therapists. So it is kind of a very interesting situation right now where I feel there's tons of knowledge, but this knowledge has to be found by the individual. You know, it's kind of right. listening to a podcast. And for example, there's uh, Melissa Lavasani, the woman who runs uh, Decriminalize Washington, the decrim movement there and Moms on Mushrooms. Like she is a good example. She was a mother of two, or she is. And after her second child, she got really into a severe depression, like postpartum depression and took all kinds of medication, but nothing helped. So, and then she, she and her husband driving through the country and she listened to Joe Rogan and he says like, well, there are magic mushrooms and they could help you with depression. So she f goes out and finds a therapist who then actually helps her. So, you know, it's kind of an accidental moment. She heard about this. And, uh, so I think that is still kind of the situation mm. that, uh, people are kind of, yeah, kind of, I mean, now there's more, of course, there's more on TV, mainly in America, though. Right. There's more in the media, so but it is kind of a still a weird situation to find therapists. It's still very, let's say, it is not mainstream yet, but do you think it will no. be mainstream at some point? Well, I think, I mean, let's say in America, what we already see is that there are therapies, there are medical institutions that will offer at one point classic let's call it classic psychedelic therapy with MDMA and mushrooms. And I mean, let's talk about MDMA because Rick Doblin and MAPS are kind of bringing this topic forward to the FDA, which means that if they would actually say, okay, MDMA therapy now, it's legal, it helps people to get over PTSD. Then even if a new government comes on, this would be a very stable decision the FDA has made. Right. So... And then this therapy would probably go first into psychiatries and hospitals or classic therapy practices who will offer this. So this is one thing that is on the way and nobody can say a date, but it's going forward. And then, of course, in America, for example, you also have states who are starting to decriminalize certain psychedelics or certain amounts of psychedelics like California in, in uh, Oregon. You can already buy mushroom, magic mushrooms to a certain point. With therapy, it's also still a little bit under the radar, but you actually can do it. The same goes for Denver, similar setup. But a couple of other states are now decriminalizing. Tell me something. I want to know from your perspective, how do you see the next 50 years? And when I say 50, 50, five, zero. Okay. Like yeah, okay. in 50 years, I'll be 90, almost exiting mm. <laughs> hopefully hopefully i live longer but um, i want to know how the future will look like when i'm that old and so i want to mm. ask you from your perspective from the perspective of the psychedelics industry in your eyes how the world would look like in 50 years okay so in the next in the next 50 years i think we will have first of all like a let's say a clinical version of this treatment in psychiatry with psychedelics, and I think there's a good chance that our current psychiatry will be already completely disrupted by psychedelic therapy. There will be psychedelic medication, I'm pretty sure, researched out of psychedelic compounds, which is already happening now. There are a bunch of biotech companies, pharma, new pharma companies looking into psychedelic medication, which might replace, I mean, it's just a possibility, they might replace SSRIs for now who are which are not working for most people and also i think that there will be like a more almost like a day-to-day day-to-day recreational like a, maybe yeah recreational but even the word recreational is already saying oh on the weekend you're gonna do psychedelics okay, and then yeah. you're gonna go on a trip and then on monday you're back kind of you know back to normal i think it will be like a, everybody will be like caffeine, maybe like caffeine, a bit. Yeah, bit. like caffeine, it, it, exactly. And I mean, if you again, like, it's good that you bring up the example of caffeine because there are so many plant medicines, right? That 
are actually, again, like related to the war on drugs. And Michael Pollan, again, wrote in his book, uh, This Is Your Mind on Plants. He writes about how caffeine came into this, uh, our system, into our Western world, and how it just made people work longer, which was great for building up America. But in theory, caffeine has a lot of bad elements as much as uh, mushrooms. Like, so there's no kind of, it's just that just the fabrication of a war on drugs and a very political decision to make some substances legal and others not. But back to your question, in 50 years, I think we will be reintroduced to using these also psychoactive substances in our daily lives, be it with microdosing to just focus better if you have something to write or to do if you still do this or probably AI is writing everything at, at that point. But I think it will be, if you really think of the decrim aspect, which is moving slowly, but it will move. If that has happened, I think people will be able to look into this, to just, yeah, to kind of enhance their lives, right. their relationships, their creativity. Once yeah. the, the stigma has gone and you have developed a practice around it, there's a big chance that it will be part of our lives. That's very nice. Hopefully, yes, I agree. Yeah. Let's see. <laughs> um, Let's see what quickly, happens. Quickly, uh, Anna, tell me about the economics behind your business because I, I know you are the founder of the New Health mm -hmm. Club. You started mm -hmm. your business uh, after you started interviewing a bunch of very interesting people in the field in your podcast. But what's the business as such? What do you do exactly in, your, in the New Health mm -hmm. Club? Yeah. So like you say, I started a podcast in 2019 when this in this new industry basically came, became visible. And I got to know Christian Angemeyer, who is a really big founder in this field and also an investor. And he supported me with the podcast, which became unexpected. <laughs> so, and I started right in the beginning of the pandemic. I started to interview, like you say, a lot of people who were building or started to build this industry at that point. Rick Doblin, um, David Bronner, Christian, Rosalind Watts, Robin Card Harris, Paul, yeah, Paul Stamets already said, Gabo Mate. So because Dr. Bronner's came on as a sponsor and Christian supported me, very early on I had the possibility <clears throat> to create a really strong brand around this podcast and also about the New Health Club in a time, 2019, 2020, when there was still only a, a very medical language around this and or a very extremely over-spiritualized language around this. And I just took my, let's say, journalistic experience also as, as a GQ reporter in, in, in Hollywood a while. I just took that and put it into the psychedelic topics and, and interviewed in a similar way people from this from the psychedelic world. And this was basically the first step. And we got a couple of investors for that who supported the, let's say, the novelty also of this communication around these kind of, yeah, illegal substances. And then the next step was that people started to approach us saying, I want to go on a trip. So can you recommend somebody in the Netherlands? Can you send me somewhere? So we started to work around a referral system and a referral arm, if you want, um, to send people to legal, safe and vetted experiences um, in, a, in a place where I knew people would be, would be a good team, it would be good therapists. And of course, there's still some money you can make around the content, but since it's still a topic that is for both, for a lot of people still very controversial. fancy or mm. controversial, it's, uh, it's going forward, but still people are very cautious to look into this. So, but in 2024, <clears throat> we actually have a very interesting development happening because what is happening now in the space also is that you have these classic compounds like ketamine, MDMA, LSD, um, mushrooms, 5-MeO, you name it, who are, as we said earlier, mostly and in most places still illegal, although we know what they could do. But now what's happening in the space is that it's almost like a re-emergence of something that's called ethnobotany, like basically 
the rediscovery of plants that people thousands, thousands of years ago used in their cultures. And some of these plants are psychoactive and some of these plants are just kind of presenting themselves with a certain energy around them and a certain reaction in your system. Let's say functional mushrooms, for example, which are not psychoactive mushrooms, like for example, chaga or lion's mane, okay. all medicinal mushrooms that are not having a psychoactive effect on you. And I feel almost like there are more and more of these, say, ethnobotanical rediscoveries that are almost like mimicking the psychedelics that we are looking into right now. Of course, it's the other way around also a little bit, but you could actually match some of these substances. And I give you an example. There's a South African root called Kana, mm -hmm. written K-N-N-A, which is just rediscovered by a bunch of new biotech companies also as a, let's say, serotonin mood enhancer. Mm, kind of similar, very similar not exactly the same, but similar to a feeling around MDMA. Or there is a, for example, also a Canadian company who looks into coca leaves, which we know is the base of cocaine. But the coca leaf itself is not cocaine. It's used in a very habitual way. I mean, I've been in Argentina in the mountains and we ate coca leaves because to get better around the altitude that we were in. Right. So it wasn't a cocaine experience, as you know, from South America. So it's just, those leaves are just, it's a, it's a plant. It's not an illegal substance right. per se. Right. And another thing is happening that we see the replacement of alcohol with new molecules. And for example, there's a company called Sentia that creates a drink based on enhancing your GABA receptor, but it doesn't contain alcohol that the GABA receptor in your Interesting. brain. Interesting. So, and... Um, so the idea is to sell to sell these products on uh, with your brand? Exactly. So, mm. yeah. And so what we're doing now is to put together all of these products in 2024, collaborating with a lot of these companies on various topics like talks and events and at Fotografiska in Berlin and in, in New York at Neuerhaus. But we're also going to sell them and eventually also create our own products around it. So, and it's, it's really interesting how these, let's say, legal ethnobotany products are re-emerging and helping a lot of psychedelic companies to almost like bridge the time right. until you will be able to sell I mean, it's like a first, you know, first, sec first or second steps. We, we, we're still taking baby exactly. steps towards yeah. that final goal. Exactly. Okay. And I think at one point, let's say the real psychedelics and these ethnobotany products will merge at one point. Okay. So in the next five to 10 years. And, and I think it's, it's an interesting, really great development, which wasn't so visible for some people it was, but not coming even more visible like two years ago. And everybody has heard, of course, of Dennis McKenna and, and Terence McKenna, his brother, who was basically the, the most famous ethnobotanist. And it's an amazing, and I think almost like a, it makes the whole topic even more interesting to see how many products, plants are already out there in the world right. that were always used for these kind of experiences or in a, just in a daily life, like coca leaves. Again, it's not, and it has nothing to do. If, if you say coca leaves, people will be like, what do you mean? Like cocaine yeah, yeah, leaves? Yeah, sure. It's like, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> there's a lot, of, there's a lot of ignorance around all these topics as well, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And for 2024, this is our goal to really create a sales place for these products. Yeah. But beyond that, also to sell products that are connected to psychedelics in a way that, for example, I mean, again, good example, Apple products are, I mean, it's, it's a very extreme example, but it, it makes a lot of sense because everybody understands it. Apple is basically a product based on a psychedelic experience of Steve Jobs mm -hmm. because he saw this, let's say, world of Apple and he just didn't see a computer. And we're still buying into this world of Apple. We want this world. We want these products. We want these experiences to look at them. We don't want just a computer, you know? Right. 
And that's t until today, or Tesla, I mean, like, uh, I think Elon Musk is also somebody becoming very open about him <clears throat> looking into psychedelics. And so I think a lot of people who have created really not only incredible brands, but have been driving innovation, they were actually undergoing a couple of very significant trips in their lives. Right. So that's also something that we start to see now, kind of. Absolutely. I work with a lot of artists and I can tell you that a lot of them use some sort of enhancer, let's yeah. say, to be creative. Of course, yeah. So it's definitely part of the human experience. And again, as I told you before, my personal experience, even though it's not as large maybe as yours, is that psychedelics are a great tool to get into your mm, the parts of your brain that are shut for X or Y reason. And not only you find beautiful memories, experiences, or traumas that you can heal, but also you find yourself connected to this beautiful world that you didn't know it was there, but it's there. And it's there. It's just that we don't see it. Anna, it was a pleasure to have you with us. I'm really happy and grateful yeah, that we managed you. to have this conversation. No, it was very interesting. The good thing is it's what we, talk, what we talked about. It's basically the main topics for people to understand how serious this is, that we need to look into these compounds and need to research them and need to have them back into our cultures right. because they were once exactly. there. Yeah. And, um, and hopefully this so, is here to stay. Are, it, yeah. it comes to stay. Hopefully it's not being yeah, kicked yeah. out again by some politicians. Well, that's the thing. I hate to say it, but that's why the scientific way, I mean, I don't hate to say it, but it's very clear in terms of the FDA example that once there's plenty of research that you can show, and then you say, well, look, this is research showing that this helps people with depression. It should be enough proof that, let's say, something like the FDA should say, okay, great, we accept this research, so we legalize now MDMA therapy. And then if the government changes, then we can be kind of safe that these whatever compounds are available and that no political system can change them just overnight, for example. And that's going to be a big topic, how we actually implement them in a way that they're untouched by politics. Right. So that's going to be a very big topic in, in the future. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you so much for being here, Anna. Until next time, and I uh, hope to see you soon. Yes. Maybe next time hope to see under you soon. a trip of mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. <laughs> here at the Mr. Rad Show, we provide first-hand information straight from the original source of knowledge. The personal opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect those of Mr. Rad. This show is brought to you by The Rad House, an unbiased, transparent, agendaless, independent media house. Our theme music is written and produced by Marco Mello.